Hello, podcast listeners. This is Jared Pickney. Today's episode is with retired attorney Jeff Branch. Jeff and I talk about his involvement in the Jones case, which is one of the craziest murder cases you'll ever hear about. We also talk about the state of our society, the importance of preparation, and establishing a healthy family life. With that, here's today's episode with Jeff Branch. Did you know coming out of school that you wanted, out of high school, that you wanted to be a lawyer? I knew coming out of kindergarten. Because that's what dad was, right? Where'd you go to kindergarten at? Uh, First United Methodist Church. First United Methodist See, they didn't kindergarten? have kindergarten when I was a kid. They did it, but it wasn't mandatory. So if you wanted to go, you'd go from 8 to noon, five days a week. Wow. So Where did you go to first grade? Woodrow. Okay. Woodrow you're a Woodrow boy. Yeah, I grew up there at 7th and Emerson. Yeah, you're right there, man. You just walked. walked. That's a great house. Walked to elementary school. Walked to uh, middle school. What was that neighborhood like? Because um, I live in that area, the Main Street area, the Midtown area, as Josh Edgy calls it. What was it like growing up? Which which was when? Like when was your childhood days? What decade? I was born in '60. Okay. So it was. Uh, you're outside all day. Um, three channels, so no TV. We had a rule at my house: you couldn't watch TV while my dad wasn't home. Or from eight to five. So you either went outside and played or you stayed inside. So I went outside every day. Mom never knew where we were. I was going. Never had to. Uh, nobody had cell phones. We drank out of people's water fountains, faucets, inside of the house, mm. which today they tell you kill you. Yeah. The lead or chemical, you know. But yeah, yeah, yeah. We'd get on our bike and we never knew where we were going. I'd just go and I'd be on Was y'all just like play sandlot baseball type stuff? And what were y'all doing? Yeah. In fact, uh, well, you've had Steve Garmouth, Clifton Garmouth, mm-hmm. and Barry Davis on. They've talked about this stuff. They're all my age. So Clifton were y'all running together? together. And, uh, were y'all all running together then? Yeah. Well, I, I live three blocks from them. Get on my bicycle, go down Dead Man's Curve. And there's a game. Uh, Pete Black lived on Main Street. Uh, you know where Grogan lives, or used to live? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you turn on Main Street there and head toward Woodrow Wilson. About the second or third house, there's an empty lot. Uh, the blacks lived here, empty lot, and the greens. I thought that was always cool, the blacks and the greens. <laughs> I always wanted the browns to buy that empty lot. Yeah. But anyway, that empty lot, which now you drive by and it's just a little lot, was a football field for us or a baseball field. So every day, any given day, we would play baseball, basketball, and football on the same day. No matter, like, rain, shine. There's more fun in the rain. Yeah. It's a lot different now. It's a lot different. You don't see a lot of kids running around outside anymore. And they can't. Who would trust their child running around anymore? Yeah. Yeah. That's sad. It's a different world. It is a much different world. You you go to Woodrow. I guess you didn't graduate from Paragould High School. 78. Class 78. And you play sports? Yes. Okay. So you're into sports. What else were you into? In your uh, in your childhood high school days, sports and that was it. Girls. Sports a big thing and girls. There we go. Sports and girls. Music. Oh, I loved it. Love I was gonna it. say you like you'd be a music guy. Yeah, love it. Okay, so then you go to Arkansas State. Well, I, my dad told me when I graduated, I always wanted to be a catcher for the base or Pittsburgh Pirates. Mm-hmm. People want to be cop or lawyer or you know fireman. Yeah. When I was a kid, people would ask me where you gonna be, and I'd tell them. 
I'm either going to be a catcher for the Pittsburgh Pirates or practice law with my dad. Why in the world did you want to be a catcher for the Pirates? Why not the Cardinals or the Braves or the Cubs? I was a Pirate fan. Pirates are really good back then. Yeah, Manny Sanguian was our catcher. Uh, Roberto Clemente, Willie Stargell, Dave Park, they were just – they won the pennant. I mean, super – they were it. So you started watching them because they were good. Yep. I have to admit that. That's fine. Are you still a Pirates fan? I don't watch baseball anymore. It's too boring. It is very boring. It is very boring. So you knew you wanted to be either a professional, uh, a major league baseball catcher for the Pirates, or a lawyer. And I was told around college that I wasn't good enough to play at ASU. So I thought, if I'm not good enough to catch for ASU, odds are I'm not going to be good enough to catch for the Pirates. (laughs) Logic. So Dad tells me, after high school, he said, son, I think educations are important. I'm going to put you through college, and you won't have a student loan. You won't have any debt, mm. but you got to make reasonable grades. you got to take a full-time load. I said, okay, what's a full-time load? 15 hours. What's reasonable grades? Well, it depends on if it's, you know, chemistry. Yeah. B, C, yeah. underwater basket weaving. I said, they got underwater. <laughs> he said, no, it's an example. <laughs> if you take an easy class, you get an A. So I'm not going to tell you a grade point, but – they have to be reasonable. And I was pretty wild in high school. I know you don't realize that, but I said, well, can I sit out a year and just get some things out of the way, <laughs> wildness, yeah. Yeah, 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 and then I'll be ready. And he said, sure. That's a wise decision. Did you tell him that? Is that, is that your reasoning, yeah. or did you not make something else up? No, I said, well, can I sit out a year and just, you know, although my dad knew me. <laughs> and, That's uh, awesome. So I sat out one semester. I worked at Big Star, which – Everybody, works Everybody man, that's been a leadership has worked there. Well, my uncle owned it. Vernon's my cousin. I didn't know that. Uncle Vernon owned it, so. There you go. It. You had it inside. So, uh, But I worked there for several years, but working there full time, I only worked there part time in high school, working there 40 hours a week. After one semester, I realized I knew I couldn't do that. I just, I need to go to school. So I started at ASU, semester late. My... Second year of college, my sister Crete, who's two years older than me, had gone to Fayetteville for a weekend. She went to ASU also. And uh, she said, Jeff, you got to go to Fayetteville. You just got to go, man. It's school. So Frank Hoskins and I decided we're going to go to Fayetteville. Went there one semester. Didn't like it. Had just started dating a girl in Jonesboro. Yeah. So you're homesick, probably. And oh, oh, I mean, I'm a mama's boy. I called first week crying, saying, I'm going to come home. I mean, <laughs> I'm, you know, college. Yeah, sure. But I uh, ended up graduating ASU. Uh, I was going to get a math degree. And Dad said, what are you going to do with a math degree? And I said, I'm going to law school. And he said, well, what are you going to do with a math degree? Mm. I said, Dad, you're not listening. I'm going to law school. He said, no, you're not listening. What are you going to do with a math degree in law school? I said, well, I don't know. You can have it. It didn't matter what your major was. They multiply your grade point by a factor. They take your LSAT, your law school admission test grade, Multiply it by a factor. They add them together, and that's what determines whether you get in law school or not. Mm. So you can have a PE degree. It doesn't matter. He said, well, you love numbers. You like math. Go into accounting. Good background for law. So I took accounting. And tell I, me how accounting is good with law. I never put those two together. Well, you get a lot of tax. Okay. If you want to get into tax law, okay. which my dad did a lot of tax law. Gotcha. Uh, just, you just learn a lot of business. Gotcha. Okay. Yep. And uh, after sense. about a semester or two of that, I didn't like accounting, though. I didn't want to go. And my dad got me a job in Jonesboro with an accounting firm. It was Jones, Clayton, Worlow, now Jones and Company. Biggest firm at the time. 
and worked a Chuck Schwinn there mm-hmm. and uh, hated it, tax season. And so I knew I didn't want, but I couldn't change majors because if you change majors, you lose hours. And I thought, I'm going to, so I stuck with accounting, even though I hated it and got an accounting degree. Then you go on to law school and you are, where were you at? Which law school did you? Fayetteville. Okay, you're in I Fayetteville. moved in my brother's apartment. He graduated law school the year before I went. So I just took his apartment and moved in there. And what part of law did you get into? What was your, what was your focus? Well, initially all I did was prosecute. Okay. Because when you come back, that's where you learn to practice law. It's being a, in our firm was being a deputy prosecutor. Because if, you know, if you screw up as a young attorney, you don't have to turn to your client and say, look, you just lost a million dollars or, you know, you're prosecuting. Yep, yep. Uh, But I prosecuted for a while and ended up doing the work that I hated the most and said I would never do, and that was domestic. So divorce, custody, Mm. uh, guardianship, a lot of probate, some personal injury. but You came back when? When were you back in Paragold? August of 86. Wow. So, okay. I was the, born August 86. That's a good month. That's when That's I got my great. law degree. Go. Great. August we had a great, strong connection. When I got my law license. It's a good year. Um, 86, the Jones murder was when? I think late 88. December. That's what I was thinking. Well, they were murdered on. I don't know the year. I know it was December 13th because it was the day before my mother's birthday. How did you get assigned to that? You, you were prosecuting. I was a deputy prosecutor in Greene County. And so, like, so how many deputy prosecutors, uh, or how many prosecutors were there, though? Well, there's typically, there's one. Okay. But Randy, Phil Hours was my mentor. Of course, he was a, a partner at that firm, Dad and Bob Thompson and okay. Randy Phil Hours. Yep. And so I learned to carry his briefcase. He taught me how to, you know, first year or so, I'd, I'd go to court with him. Uh, okay. But uh, on a case like that, you need help. Yeah, so, yeah. Randy. So I'm on a text thread right now, obviously, with you, Randy, Ryan, Judge Goodson, uh, Julie, and then J.D. Stevenson, because we all, I have an interest in this Dr. Jones case. We've, we've mentioned it a couple times here on the podcast, and hopefully Randy is going to be writing a book uh, about this. It's, it's, he should. It's one of the craziest, if not the craziest, stories I've ever heard. You were, what was your role in that case? You were prosecuting the as Edwards, mm-hmm. so so tell people the, those who are listening because there are obviously some who are going to hear this and never even heard. They, what are you talking about the Jones case? Tell me what happened there. Kind of just lay out the summary of that story to of catch people up. Yeah, yeah. So people can hear this. Well, first, and then I want to know yeah how you came. Yeah, yeah. Go it ahead. Take a month to give it justice. So yeah. the Reader's Digest nutshell version. Uh, I mean, we were called that morning and said, hey, there's a double homicide. So we go out to the scene, uh, something you'll never forget. You were out there at the scene? Yeah. And when I'd never really seen dead bodies, especially shot. Yeah, you're how old at that point? Well, uh, I was born in 60, 28. Yeah. So a young uh, man. A young man. But uh, we're, so we, in, you know, under the course of the investigation, found out that... Uh, the doctor was dating one of his nurses, and uh, he had. She had decided that it's me or your wife. She got tired of being the girlfriend, mm-hmm. so according to her, he wanted to hire somebody to kill his wife. And so, back me up for just a moment on that. So you go out to the house, 
Walk me through, and those who are listening to this, because, you know, again, this is your life. You've lived it. So to you, it's just normal, everyday stuff. But most people listening to this, 99.9% are not attorneys. They have no idea. They, they will never, ever work a murder scene, right? So how does that walk us through that? You go into the house. What are you doing? Because you're not the detective. You know, you're not, obviously, forensics wasn't even a thing. Like, what are you specifically doing there? Like, well, what are I, you? what's your job at that point? Mostly just to examine the scene and get yourself familiar with it, look for clues. I mean. So you're looking for clues just like anybody else is down there. Well, they had already gone in and done, you know, they hold everybody back for a little bit just to, you know, look for shells or for things that so people don't trample in and yeah. cross-contaminate evidence, things of that nature. But when we got in there, I mean, we were, you know, just knowing that hopefully one of these days we're going to get to try this case, figure out who did this, and it was just helpful to know them. You know what happened? What does that feel like to walk into something like that? Like if you can go back as a 28-year-old man, you walk in, especially like, you know, growing up here in Paragol in the safe place. You said, I'm riding my bike all over the place. You never even think about this kind of stuff happening here. So it's even different as maybe if you grew up in like inner city New York or what, you know what I'm saying? So it's like, what was that like for you? Just what did it feel like that day walking in? It's overwhelming. Because you walk in and you think, like you said, that doesn't happen in Paragol. Mm -hmm. But, you know, and just... You have, it's just overwhelming. I don't know how to even put into words what's going through your mind because, you know, you, it's not supposed to happen. Now you kind of feel a responsibility to figure out what happened, make sure that, you know, what they say justice is served, yeah, whatever they want to say. But, I mean, it's, it's overwhelming. That's the only word I can think so of. So you go it's and just, you spend some time there, and then at that point, how did y'all get – how did you – get connected with this person and someone come forward and say, Hey, I heard that he hired a hitman or was it the girlfriend? Who was it that came well, forward? Well, the girlfriend was key. And I think what happened was once they ended up dead, everybody's freaking out. The Edwards are Sharon Edwards. And here's what's wild about it. His girlfriend's last name was Edwards, Sharon Edwards. The no people, relational connection. The then. people she hired to commit the murder, which didn't do the murder, but a conspiracy to commit the murder, yeah. was Donald and Carolyn Edwards. Were they ever going, but, did they ever have any plans to murder? I don't believe so ever. Never. They were going to milk him out of what they could milk him out of and then tell him, you know, turn us over to the better And they were the girl. ones you're prosecuting? Is yes. that right? Yeah, so, she, she came. I think she got scared of what was happening. Mm -hmm. And so I think... I think we, she came in. They may have put us on her. But anyway, we got hold of her and figured out what was going on with Donald and Carolyn Edwards. They'd been paid 20, I think it was $20,000, $30,000 to commit Jeez. this murder. Uh, and so then we started investigating them. And You talked to them? Yeah, we, in fact, we had to. So you like, what do you do? You call them into your. No, the police went and got them. We told them, bring them up to our office because it was, we knew there was going to be. Several law enforcement there, and it was late at night, eight, seven, eight, nine. I don't know. Same off, same building you're in now. Yeah, or, yeah, yes, sir. Uh, but we had the police go get them. I think they were arrested them, brought them up to our office. We put one in one conference room, put the other Donald in one conference room, put his uh. wife in another conference room, and we had detectives going in and ask some questions to see of if course, stories match up. Or and nothing. Randy and I couldn't go in because then we'd be a witness. And I learned that early in my career. That's another story. But you, So we were sitting upstairs, and they'd come out and ask us questions, tell us what was going on. We'd figure out what that, and we'd send them back with other questions. And, and at some point, finally, she asked her, maybe I need a lawyer. 
And so they called David Goodson, and he comes down there, and that shut her up because she did the right thing. She decided, well, I probably ought not be answering any of these questions. <laughs> yeah. And so she shut up, and Donald gave us a little bit more, but they gave us enough to then is when the real the, did you think at that point they had committed the murders like I that night? No doubt in my mind they did it. Wow, none. When Randy I, was the same way. Yeah, oh, I'm, you'd have to ask him, but I'm assuming so. Yeah, but uh, so when, you're like, hey, we got it. In just my a closing time. argument at the trial, we tried her first. No, we tried Donald first. We didn't have to try her. She pled guilty, but she uh, pled guilty to murder. No, to cons- no, we didn't oh, charge. Oh, that's murder. right. That's just a conspiracy. We charged Donald and Carolyn and Sharon. With conspiracy. So my question murder. was, just to make sure you're, I was clear, did you think at that point they had committed the murder or just that you were convinced they were a part of the conspiracy? Well, I was convinced they were compart- a part of a conspiracy. But you weren't convinced until they had murdered? I was convinced they were involved in the murder. Okay. Now, whether or not they pulled the trigger yep. or whether they got yep. Jared Pickney to do it or whoever, I sure. didn't know, but I thought that they were involved yep. in it. Gotcha. And in fact, when we tried Donald Edwards, my closing argument because that the ju- the defense lawyer Philip Wells kept trying to say, well, you, they can't prove that they committed the murder, and we didn't charge them with murder. Just we charged them with conspiracy to commit murder. Which have been how many how many years? I guess they were supposed to get like twenty. I think was okay, max, 20. and that's what they got. Okay. But uh, in closing, I even told the jury, I said, it we're not they're not charged with murder. In fact, the Jones could be still alive and sitting in the front row of the jury of the courtroom. And they'd still be charged with conspiracy to commit capital murder. Because you so, were convinced that they were working with this person to kill Jones. Now, I didn't tell the jury I think they did it. Right, sure. But it didn't, the murder didn't matter in a conspiracy case. Yeah. All we had to do is, because it's illegal for me to conspire with you to kill my wife, whether you kill her or not. Yeah. It's illegal for me to pay you and, and hire That's someone. right. You know, that and they took itself. the money, right? I mean, they ended up getting the oh, money. Oh, they took the money. That's one reason way we connect, uh, convicted them was we had some great, Great police officers, detectives. Fred Poindexter, J.D. Stevenson, Dennis Hyde. Yeah. Uh, Dan Langston was on that at the time, is that right? Langston, I don't think, he was on a time. I don't think he was involved much. Okay. The lead investigator was probably Fred Poindexter, yeah. J.D. Okay. But those two were, and Dennis Hyde, he was, I think, police chief. Yeah, chief of police. But J.D. and Freddie Poindexter were the main. Now, Jerry Brogdon with Arkansas State Police, he was very involved also. How long did that case last from start to finish? From the time y'all first brought them in to whenever they went to prison? Two years, maybe, a year or two. Not long. We tried them pretty quick. Wow. They wanted a quick trial, and we gave it to them. We, com- we accommodated them. So that case was closed, the, the conspiracy, by the end of 90? Probably 90-ish. So at that point, y'all think, okay, we've got the people who conspired to kill uh, Dr. Johnson's wife, still not really sure who the murderer was. So are, are people still investigating the case at that point, trying to figure out I'm who sure murdered them? Were. I, I wasn't too involved with it because yeah. in my mind, I had closure. I thought, we don't know who pulled the trigger, but I think we've got the people that were involved. There okay. may be others involved, and they were still looking into it. The police were, but... So you're know. going about your life, not really thinking about the case much, and then all of a sudden, what you happens? Get, well, all of a sudden, you get that magic phone call. Hey, Bruce Higgins just called the police uh, department and said that he's got a ring down there that he made for he made it for Johnny Jones. Are you sure? Which that's is Dr. Jones' wife, yeah. Right. And we said, are you sure? He said he made the ring. He recognizes that ring. And the guys that brought it in, uh, he sent out 
and told him it's going to take me an hour or two to do this because he's panicking. He doesn't know what to do. Yeah, and it's clear he had made the ring because she had arthritis in her finger, right? And so it, it was, was like some sort of a latch or something where she yeah, had to take it on and off easy. I don't remember yeah. exactly what it was, but it was a specially made ring. Yeah. I mean, there was no doubt it was hers. Yes, yeah, yeah, right. And so then... And so he basically, for those who haven't heard this story before, he tells these guys who come in with the jewelry, he recognizes it, he says, hey, y'all go away for a little bit, and I'll do some some uh, figuring, and I'll let you know kind of what this is worth when you come back in a couple hours. But he calls the police, right? Immediately. And they immediately go down there. And when the guys came back in, they arrested them. And then they start questioning them and trace it back and trace it back and keep... And the investigative work they did was it just people don't realize the job that they did, not only the task that was involved, but how good a job they did at it. Yeah, because it, it went from, uh, you know, Ryan just sent that video. I don't know if you saw it yet, but it's on tape, and he's now made a digital. He sent it to our little, uh, little group that's on the text thread. But the jewelry came to Paragold, obviously, and that somehow, you'd say, an act of God, right, made it back to the guy who had made the jewelry for Mrs. Jones. Like, what is the chances of that happening? Like, it's, well, you've asked me earlier what the chances of that are, yeah. and you can't even say it's one in a trillion. It was a, it was a God scene. It had to have been. It was an it's, act of God. Especially when you understand this part of the story, for those who haven't heard it, is the guys who brought it in, you found out, they got it from someone in Corning. That person got it from someone, I think, in Malvern. That person got it from someone in Harrison, who was a federal fugitive. And that person got it from someone who was out in Arizona who just happened to be a guy by the name of Leroy Bullock. Correct. That's and right. Leroy Bullock was the guy who killed Dr. Jones and his wife. Yeah. And just so happened to be a serial killer. Amazing. It had nothing to do with the hit. You can't make it up. And the my favorite part of that story is whenever Leroy's brought in for questioning and he knows nothing about the hit. He knows nothing about that family. All he knew was that he was in Jonesboro visiting a relative who was a hairdresser, saw Mrs. Jones walk in with a bunch of jewelry, said, I'm going to go back, kill her, rob her, uh, take her stuff. The next day, goes to the house. He grabs flowers, and I just found this out while ago from you. He goes to Dr. Jones' house, knocks on the door, he has a gun hidden behind some flowers that he had just got from St. Mary's Cemetery, which is right across the street from where the house is. It's been now tore down. Correct. Dr. Jones answers. He pulls the flowers away, points the gun, and Jones says, wait a minute. Hey, hang on. I've already paid you your money. Thinking it's the hitman. Correct. And then says, but hey, come on in. My wife will be back shortly. I'll let you, you know, kill her here right now. Actually, I think he said come back in an hour because I think Jones was going to leave, so he wouldn't be there. Ah. My recollection was he didn't, he just said, you know, come back in an hour. So does that what he did, or he just at that point go ahead and kill him? No, he didn't. He didn't. He, he was high on PCP. Uh, Bullock, Bullock was. was. That's what he said in his statement, and I don't doubt it, but he said he was high on PCP, and he never could figure out why is the doctor telling me, <laughs> my wife's not here, come back in an hour. It was making no He was sense so confused. It, would make any, it make, wouldn't make sense if you were sober. Right. But it didn't make, you know, he's thinking, why would... Great, your wife's not here. I don't have two people to kill. I'll just kill you. Wow. And I don't think he waited on the wife. I think she came in before he got his business done. So he went ahead and killed Dr. Jones. Was Dr. Jones there close to the door, his body? Yeah, he was up. He was in the same room as the door. He was in the, When you walk in, it was kind of a kitchen area, and he was in that room. Yes. Both were shot in the back of the head. Back of the head. Execution stuff. So he maybe just was walking away. Hey, go grab something no, for I me. I think just, he. You just talking, yeah. You got a gun to somebody, you tell them kneel down, they're going to kneel down. You put the gun in the back of the – they were both shot in the back of the head execution style, the twenty two, which wow. all a twenty two is going to do is ricochet around mm. in your – I mean, hit people. That's their 
you know, what caliber of choice is a twenty-two? Obviously, Bullock knew what he was doing because hmm. he killed a total of seven people, would have killed more. I say he did kill more. You think he did? I do. See, Julie, you know, who's on our text thread, she's doing all this. You've seen all the research she's doing now, and she's convinced of the same thing. And she hasn't said that to y'all through our little text thread yet. She's like, well, I want to I want to get more evidence first. But she's I like, have zero proof of it, but I can exactly. imagine that we he admitted to everything he did. You know, nobody admits to everything. Yeah. They stop when they think you've, they've said enough to make you happy. Yeah. But, no, I, I think he did more. Yeah, online there's a, an article about him from 1990 that had him connected to seven homicides in four states. Yeah. That's what, yeah, I mean, it's, yeah, definitely uh, Tennessee, Arkansas, Virginia. I'm not sure if the other one was in Arizona or uh, Florida. In Florida. Okay. Yeah, so I guess five states, actually, because Virginia is one of them, too. Yeah. It, so crazy. Yeah. So he kills Dr. Jones. And then he said he think he was probably just getting what he could. And all of a sudden she rose up and was like, well, I guess I got to kill her now, too. And she was killed downstairs. In a bedroom where the safe was, so uh, I don't know if she let the him safe in the open? safe or the safe was open oh, okay. and empty. So either yeah, either Doctor Jones. I mean, one of them let him in it. Well, she must have right because if he was well, if I'm he thinking, was killed upstairs, but she was killed in the room where the safe was downstairs, which yeah. led me to just speculate that she walked in on him. That had to be yeah yeah. And so and he just said, "Take me down there. Maybe who knows what he told her. I'll let you know, live. Let just you give me your stuff. No yeah. telling, but yeah, she lets him in the safe and pop." Pop in the back of the head. Man, and it's there's so many layers to it. You know, it's like when you start studying Leroy Bullock's life, he uh, he grew up in a tragic home. I mean, his his dad was in and out of prison, escape prison a couple different times. His brother was a murderer. He had another brother, listen to this, Chris, that whenever uh, Leroy was 11, he him and his brother were out playing in a field because they were farmers, and his brother was eight and got ran over by a tractor and killed. And so wow. I saw that happen. Gosh. And so, like, just a whole family full of bur- I mean, crime, right? And, I mean, they eventually I think he, you know, Dr. Jones, is, he was a crooked man, you know, clearly. And, 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 I mean, again, there's, you know, who am I to say? I'm not here to, like, cast stones at him or whatever, but, like, you know, he had a past in Florida. He did. He hired someone to kill his wife. And when you look at his story, it's honestly just as tragic as Leroy Bullock's. You know, I mean, he was basically, I think, kind of given up uh, early early age by his parents, was kind of raised by his grandparents. I mean, he just had a, a pretty sad life. And I'm just reminded as I have been diving into this story is it's so easy sometimes to just see the monster and forget, like, they didn't just wake up one day, right? I mean, Dr. Jones didn't just wake up one day and say, that's what I want to do with my life. And neither did Leroy Bullock. You know, no, but we're a product of our environment, whether people like it or not. We're a product of our environment, and you're raised by a good family. Odds are, odds are, yeah, you'll end up good. Not always. There's always an exception to the rule. If you're raised in a dysfunctional family, odds are, yeah, you'll be dysfunctional. Well, and we see that, don't we? Like even, and you've you've had a, a unique perspective of that, just from the seat that you've been in. You know, we've had different, uh, we've had detectives on here and we've had, you know, the jail administrator on here, different people. We've had different attorneys and they say that a lot of the crime in this city is generational. Oh, the, and it's not funny. Ha ha. It's ironic funny. I prosecuted children of the people that my father prosecuted 30 years earlier. Mm. That crazy. And now people that I prosecuted, children I see going through the criminal system. How do we break that? Is that just like something that's going to always, like in your mind, or have you gotten to a place where you're just like, well, that's just the way it's always going to be and there's nothing we can do about it? Or do you have ideas about well, ways we can break that? The realist in me says that... It's just the way you know, it is. That's the way it is. It's, 
it's prophecy being fulfilled, basically. I hate to say that, but, uh, you know, the, the optimist in me wants to say that it could be better, but uh, it will never be because, in my humble opinion, uh, one, we have too many broken families. Uh, Is it more now than what you noticed when, when you first no came in? question, yes. Well, think about this. When I was in high school, and I've thought about this a lot, when I was in high school, I can't, I don't know any of my friends or running buddies whose parents were divorced. Think about that. I don't know if, if it was, you're a lot younger than me. I'm 63. But I get to thinking back in high school, none of the people I, I ran with or knew, they came, their mother and father were home. Most of the mothers were staying on moms, which is another thing I'll get on to you for. But, uh, and nowadays, more than 50% of the children, I'm guessing, I don't know the statistics, but you go to a junior high or a high school or an elementary school, I'd say half the kids in there are in a broken home. Mm-hmm. Why and, do you think that is? What did you What do you say? I know it can't just be one thing, but, like, what do you think is, the, what is the, the recipe? Like, what is the things, the ingredients that you think have created that kind of cocktail of, of just dysfunction? The devil. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I mean that's that's like the you could say like for sure like and I'm and people that listen to this know like that's my day job as a pastor right and so like I believe in the devil for sure and I I do believe he's a source of all the evil all the darkness all the but like from a what you can see right that's the unseen element the influence like from what you see what are the, if you want to say again the devil's the root behind all that or whatever like what are kind of the things that are being used you feel like from your perspective well that's creating that one is divorces are no longer a stigma like they used to be when back then if you were divorced that you were that was unusual it, yeah. you had a stigma to you so if you made a commitment to marry someone you kept the commitment you did and it didn't matter that times were tough now, who's got a perfect marriage sure. nobody nobody uh but I think a lot of it is divorces are too easy to get. I've always said jokingly because I made a living on divorces. I hate to admit it, but mm-hmm. I, you know, you make a living representing people in divorces. Mm-hmm. But I always joked that they've got it backwards. It used to cost ten or fifteen bucks to get a uh, marriage license, and it cost you thousands to get a divorce. It ought to cost a thousand to get a marriage license and fifteen dollars to get divorced. Mm-hmm. And then we would discourage people from jumping into those marriages man we you know i won't even do a a wedding unless someone has gone through you know five to six weeks of counseling that's probably and 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 i tell them like when they come through like my i even will encourage people to do what i call i've been with a couple right now pre-engagement counseling so don't come to me like after you've been engaged because that's it's you're just trying to check a box you've already made a decision you're going to do this but i think people need to know what they're signing up for and they need to realize, like, you know, you've got a lot of baggage, a lot of issues that you're carrying into this marriage, and so does this person. And they've got a whole lot of family issues. Everybody does. Everybody's yep. got kind of their own stuff that you're carrying in. And that's not easy, like you said. I mean, everybody's got those issues. And I think a lot of times people just have never been given the tools they need to now deal with those things. And so it's kind of like you're just trying to cultivate a garden with a stick, you know. And it's like it's, well, just, it's frustrating. And people and just bail. Another thing that I think, and it's – uh, very controversial for me to say this, but I don't care. I'm retired. And <laughs> what do you me. got what to lose, man? Yeah, I got two grandkids that love me. What do I care? Uh, <laughs> I think the government is a lot of the, at fault with the all the assistance that they give. Mm. When they started the welfare program, they ruined the marital family because now financially people are better off being a single parent yeah. financially. 
Uh, yeah, yeah. So, and I, I will say this because I think sometimes people hear you say that and they're like, "Yeah, that ain't true." Like, yes. And and I have personally, and again, I don't. I'm not here to like say it's the government's fault or whatever else. But I have, I have personally seen this happen in the fact of you know I worked at Arkansas Counseling for five years, and I was in a lot of single. Matter of fact, I saw hundreds of kids in five years, and only one of those had a dad in the home. So it's a lot of single parent homes. And um, to go back to there's probably a correlation there, right, with the divorce and dad not being there, and, and that's why they're ended up in, with some in counseling, need some support. And so it's like, but I remember specifically working to get a single mom, she had five kids, to get her a job at a nursing home here in town. And she quit after three months. And I said, why did you quit? She said, because I can make more money staying home. That's what I'm telling playing you. Playing PlayStation than I can. She said, I lost my check when I started going over there and working. Saw it happen first firsthand. I saw it happen firsthand for 35 years practicing law and saw it before that just in a natural life that the welfare system ruined the marriage. How do you say it ruined the marriage? Because people are getting pregnant now, uh, which they shouldn't, but things happen. But people who get pregnant now, they look at what they could make as a single parent I got you. And what, versus if they get married. And it versus if they get married. If they get married, they don't qualify for all these other and things. And those are conversations you've had with people? A thousand times. Wow. Yes. And it's it's sad, but, you know, people, they are, they're paying people more money on welfare than they can make. Now, what is right about that picture? And on welfare, back when welfare started, maybe it started for a good reason, I don't know, but when it started... It was a stigma. If you were on welfare, that was a stigma. Yeah. And people were only on it for a short period of time, and their goal was to get off it. And I'm going to find me a job as quick as I can and get away from this welfare. And today, there is no stigma to it. Not that there should be, whether everybody needs help. But you ought not have help for the rest of your life. Help them for a little while until they can get back on their feet. But if they can't get back on their feet, then they're just going to have to suffer. Yeah. So hard to jump that poverty gap, right? It is. But at some point, you know, you've got to make people be responsible for themselves. A child, in my opinion, a child needs a mother and a father in the home. Yeah. Not just a mom and well, a dad. Well, that's been proven. In yeah. the home. Yeah. And the ones that don't are affected by it. Oh, 100%. Yeah. You're but not, I, mom and dad both need to be there to give the kid the best chance. But the lack of stigma, the fact that the government makes it, more wealthy or easier financially to to be single with children than to get married, uh, and the fact that uh, nobody cares anymore. It just, you know. Yeah. What you're talking about then is, like, if we're going to go back to the original question, I think you kind of answered it is, you know, like, how do we reverse some of the stuff? I mean, it all happens in the home. You know? It does. Like, it's not, not going to be a program. You know, it's not going to be whether it's a government program or church program or, you know, school. Rotary Club school program, like, you know, those kind of things. Like, somehow that has to take – you can't undo – you can, right? There are exceptions to the rule. Like, and you know people like that. I do, too, who come from awful homes and turn to be fantastic people. But those are the outliers. They're the exceptions. They're the exception to the rule. And so it's, yeah, somehow figuring out a way to – unless you can get in there and get into the home – and, and help create some sort of sense of stability there. And it's going to be hard. And I'll tell you, and people will be offended by this, I think another thing that even in, in a married couple's home that affects the children, uh, and this will get you canceled for me saying this, but yeah. I don't care, 
uh, it's, I think we need more stay-at-home moms. Yeah. Because uh, when, when I was growing up, my mother was a stay-at-home mom. My mom was home. That was her job. And people that think that's easy, I would rather work than be a stay-at-home uh, mom. Yes. There's no break. Yeah, there's yeah. no lunch hour. It's there's, very hard. You know, you're 24. So it's, but I say that to say this. Uh, when, when I had my first child, my wife worked at Security Bank, the old Security Bank. She was a teller. We put our uh, child, they gave, I think, nine weeks back then for uh, sick or family leave, whatever. Mm-hmm. We put the, our child in a daycare. Well, he came home one day and he had corn in his diaper. He ain't you know, old enough to eat corn. Who's mm-hmm. feeding him corn? Comes home the next day, got a bite mark on his back. And I told her, I said, look, we sit down with a pencil and, pa- pencil and paper. And here's how much you make a week at Security Bank. Here's how much we're paying daycare. You're making about $40 more. Yeah, for four, you're making a dollar an hour. Yeah, why don't you stay home and I'll give you forty bucks, mm-hmm. and you stay home. And so, when my children were growing up, their mom was there. You know, she was a stay-at-home mom. Yeah, my son now, uh, who's got two children, uh, there's daughter seven, and my grandson's three. Their mother is stay-at-home mom, mm. and that's why a lot of people brag, and I'm bragging on them. But a lot of people say, "Oh, those children are so well behaved." It's because they're being raised by their mother and not a daycare who doesn't care. Not that they don't care about them, but they're not going to give them. They care as much maybe as mom. And they they got 10 kids to watch after. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, even if they do care, it's just a different dynamic. Well, they they do care. Don't get me wrong. But they can't give them the same love and attention. For sure. And and education. Totally. Yeah, I mean, we, my wife just started back to school. Uh, She's teaching ninth grade English at Tech and was a homeschool mom. Uh, well, stay-at-home mom from 2011 until this past year, till literally August of this year, and so uh, was at home with all of our kids until they went to school, and then even homeschooled them for a few a few years, and we went back and forth on that. You You'll know? be rewarded for that, you know. And 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 you know, we still are kind of like, you know, at what point did you know have we? And it's, and it's different, you know. Not everyone can do that. There are a lot of single-parent homes, and 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 I think that. You know, for those who are listening to this that have a single parent home, and or maybe you just whatever you can't do that. I do at times think, man, like God's grace, hopefully, is sufficient for that. But it's there is something about having the kid raised and 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 just to spend so much time with the mom, with the dad in the home. Like we know, we know that those stats, no matter whether it's whoever it is, everyone says like the stats hold true. Like the more time that a parent is spending with the kids, typically, if the parents are healthy. And- Typically, the better the kids are going to be. And these people that talk about, I want to give my children quality time, and they need quality time, but they need quantity more than they need quality. Yeah. And they need their parents there more. So, it, yeah. you know. Well, and now with the, with the devices, I mean, it's so easy. And this is something, again, me and my wife are in the middle of right now, and these are conversations we're having is, you know, I come home tired from work. She comes home tired from work. The kids come home tired from school. What's the easiest thing to do? Put them in front yeah. of a TV. Yep. Give them a device, you know, and we're going to go work on dinner and or we're going to go kind of still try to finish some things or do some laundry or whatever and let them just kind of veg out. And I mean, if you look at that, by the time you send them to school, then they come home and look at a screen. How much time? How many hours? That how day? much time have you actually spent talking, connecting with your kid relationally? Exactly. exactly. Not much, you know, not much. And so. So who's raising your child? The school. Yeah. The, well, they're the spending computer. more time with them for sure. Now, now, here's yeah. another thing I have problems with today is when I was growing up. If you got in trouble at school, yeah, 
you were in more trouble at home. Yeah, did you listen to, uh, by chance, get a chance to listen to Coach Gills, I did. Kevin Gills? So he had to. He talked about that. And he's my. He's 63, I'm 63. Sounds like his parents were my parents because we had, you know, but. Well, we, I think we've seen a um, absolute collapse in uh, a trust of authority, and right. I don't. I, and I think that's a big part because of social media. But we just don't trust people in authority. We just don't anymore as a society. You know what I'm saying? Right. And so it's like that's why I think you're having this issue with kids coming home. And you know, well, don't Miss, Miss Pickney either. got on to me, and oh well, she did, did she? I'll call Miss Pickney. Don't you worry. You know what I'm saying? It's like. We just don't trust that people in authority have our best interests in mind, and I don't know. I don't know how we. I don't. I don't know how you change that. You know. I don't know what you. <laughs> I don't know if there is a way to. Well, to I, deal with it. I hate to be a pessimist, but I'm not sure there isn't at this day and age. Yeah, I think we're just stuck with what we got. You know, we can pray for it and we can do all we want, but. Uh, yeah, and I would just encourage those that are in those positions just to keep doing what you're doing. Because we do have a lot of, you know, we have great schools. I do think that. And I think there's, you know, there's there's great attorneys and there's great pastors and there's great coaches. And, and you know, I would encourage those to keep doing what you're doing. Because I, I think, you know, sometimes, too, like those, the, the, the loudest people, like sometimes we, those who complain or want to complain are typically the loudest voices. And I think it's easy to think that's everybody or that's even the majority. I don't think it is. Well, I don't think that's the majority of people in our city or in our community or in our world even. Does that make sense? That's, that's, you couldn't have said it better. Uh, tell me this. Someone made a comment, just switching gears, to go back to about your, your, your family, kind of what triggered this. Someone made a comment to me recently that probably one of the greatest lawyers that they knew ever in, in this area was your dad. Would you agree with that? And if so, like, what do you think made your dad – such a, a well-respected attorney. I'd agree with that probably 100%. And not just because he's my dad, because I've seen him practice. I've seen others talk about him. I've, uh, but my dad is an enigma. He's, you know, put himself through school, the GI Bill, graduated top of his class, graduated number one in his law class, made the top score on the bar exam uh, because he was committed. You You can... You may be smarter than my dad. No one will ever outwork my dad. Does he have a photographic memory, or is he just a hard worker, period? I, I'm not sure it's photographic, but it's as close as you can get to it. The, but he's the, a hard worker. For those who haven't listened, I don't even know, Chris, you might be able to look him up, but like he's been on here twice on the Paragold podcast. For those who care at all about the history of Paragold, or even the history of our schools and how those came about, go listen to his. Just type in Bob Branch. You already found it, Chris? Yeah, they're both in 2022. Uh, one was May 13th and one was August 19th. Yeah. And so it's unbelievable the amount of information he has. But he was he, he was a preparer. He always taught me the six, well, I, I made it six P's, the five P's of life. Prior preparation prevents piss poor performance. Say it again. Prior preparation prevents piss poor performance. <laughs> That's great. Now, Prior preparation prevents poor performance. It's yeah, probably yeah. more politically correct. <laughs> six P sounds better to me, but yeah. you 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 won't outwork me. You might mm. be smarter than me. You may be prettier than me, mm. but I'm gonna outwork you, and I'm gonna I'm gonna spend more time on this case. I'd I'd go and try a case. I'd see the other lawyer. He'd, he'd be saying, "Who's our next witness? What do they know?" He didn't even talk to his witnesses, and I hate to say this: lawyers by nature are lazy. 
Huh. Preachers by nature are lazy. <laughs> Ditch diggers by nature yeah. are lazy. People are only, most folks are only going to do what they got to do to get yeah, by. Right. Yeah. If you want to excel at something, you have to put in a little extra time. Yeah. And you see that with athletes. You see that with lawyers, preachers, yeah. ditch diggers. My dad once told me, he discouraged me from going to law school. Said, it's a tough way to make a living. I said, I want to make some money. He said, son, you can make as much money selling pencils on a street corner than you can practicing law if you sell enough pencils at a good enough profit. So, Just trying to let you know it's about the preparation. It's it about is. The work. It's about the work thing. It, and another thing is, it's not how much money you make, it's how you manage your money. And I know some people that'll make a thousand a week that'll spend two thousand oh, sure. a week. I know some people make a thousand a week that spend two hundred a week. Yeah. So my dad taught me early on, and I didn't like it, and I'll tell you about that. It's an eighty ten ten rule. The first when you get your paycheck, the first ten percent of that paycheck goes to me, my savings account. The next ten percent goes to the tithing or mm-hmm. charity. Yep. Eighty percent I live on. And people say, well, I can't even live on my paycheck now. I know I can't live on 80%. Yeah, you can. If you tried, you could. People sure. could do that, but yeah. they're too busy keeping up, you know, the Smiths, whatever you want to call it. But they got to, but it's how you manage that money. And if you'll work on that, you don't pay your bills when you get paid first. Yeah. The first person you paid is you because mm. you worked hard for that money. So if they put 10% back, 20% to charity, 80% to, they, and I'll give you an example. I got out of law school, uh, went to work for Dad. I had to interview for that job, which shot me. My senior year, right toward the end, he called and said, when can you be down here for an interview? And I said, oh, who we interview? And he said, you. And I said, what for? <laughs> I was serious. I didn't. He caught me off guard. He said, well, I thought you wanted to practice law. And I said, well, I thought I had a job. Yeah. You're my dad. Yeah. You're the yeah. senior partner. <laughs> yeah. He said, well, son, it don't work that way. So I went in and interviewed. Thank God got the job. Did you have long hair then? Yes. At that time, I did, but then I, my dad said, son, and my dad never told me what to do in that sense. He would give me advice, and his advice at that time was, son, it's going to be hard to practice law in Paragol with long hair. People judge. They shouldn't, but people judge by appearance. And it's and I thought, well, my dad's been right every time. Did you cut it then? And so I got my hair cut, and I had short hair back then. You sent me a picture in that. Yeah, you had short hair in that hair. Uh, that video, yeah, the, the and, news clip. But I'd been practicing a couple of years, and I just got to thinking, you know, that's not me. I've always had long hair. Even in high school, I had long hair. My hair, my senior year was this longer, longer. Really? And, it's uh, a good look, man. Well, I just, I, back then it was in. Uh, but I thought, you know, if people aren't going to use me because of the length of my hair, I don't want them as a client anyway. Mm. I'm going to let my, and once I let my hair grow out, I was busier than I ever was. I bet, man. In fact, some people told me, the reason I come use you is because you're real, man. That's you it. Don't, you don't care what people think. I always thought that about you, even grow, growing up. I knew of you, just like, because Perigold's a small town, and I was shocked whenever, I don't even know how I first even came to know about you, but I remember at some point. <laughs> sure it wasn't good. <laughs> I remember at some point being like, someone told me you were a lawyer, and I'm like, that guy's a lawyer? Because you didn't look like one, which was intriguing. What is, now, what which was look intriguing? Like? That's what I want to ask you. The, the, like, what your dad told you people expected you to look like? And I, I won't name any names, but there was a local attorney, still a local attorney here, used to mow his yard in khakis. Never had a hair out of place. He looked like a lawyer 24-7. Yes, that's a lawyer. But I wouldn't hire him. I wouldn't send my worst enemy to him. 
because he was lazy. He didn't do good work product. So I didn't care what I looked like. Yeah. I cared about my reputation as an attorney. Yes, and you did begin to develop a good reputation. And if you work hard and you get good results. No matter what your hair looks like. And I'll tell you what's another thing is wild, and my dad had the same experience. You wouldn't believe how many people that came that I represented that I'd sued previously. And they'd come in and say, man, I was impressed. Will you be my lawyer? Why wouldn't I? Well, you sued me before. Well, I was getting paid for that. (laughs) Nothing personal, but that was my role. Have you ever had to prosecute? uh, you, You said you were a defender. No, oh, no you never read never. That. Okay. Uh, did you ever had to prosecute somebody that you're like, ah, I think they might be innocent? Well, if I thought that, I really did some groundwork and, you know, would dismiss the case. Because I always wondered about that. Yeah, I asked, no, you, I asked Sonia about that. When she one even, thing I learned early on, not just from Bob Branch and Bob Thompson, but from Randy Philhowers, was our job is to do justice. Now, that sounds cliche-ish. What's a prosecutor's job is to do justice. But when you think about it, that's what it is. And if I think somebody has been wrongfully accused, and I've, I, it's my job, it's my duty to say, whoop, this is not right, I'm not going to prosecute that. So there were a lot of cases that we would gnaw pros, which is Latin for dismiss. Okay, so with, you would have those. Oh, yeah. What was, what was the, uh, the Jones case is obviously the craziest case you've been a part of. Was that also the most difficult, or do you have another one that comes to mind? Oh, no, they're all difficult. I, I, I'll tell you one that comes to mind. J.D. Stevenson was on there, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to touch on a case that he brought up because oh. he didn't finish. You ever heard of Paul Harvey? Yeah, yeah, And now for the rest of the story. I think I know where you're going. Uh, there was a beautiful little six, seven, eight-year-old girl. She came home one day, broken home. Mama's boyfriend was home. And uh, she was complaining because her feet hurt because her shoes were too small and she had a blister. And it made him mad. And her foot had a blister on it from her feet. Shoes being too small. He boils. He didn't get hot tap water out of his faucet. He put some water on the stove, boiled it, put her foot in that water, held her foot in that water as long as he could hold it. But you can imagine her flailing. So he could only hold it in there, but it doesn't take long. And I don't know if it was a rolling boil or what. But the proof, the testimony was he did put it on the on the stove. Mm-hmm. The skin came off her feet. Okay, so we prosecuted that guy and his wife for allowing it to happen, and we convicted him, sent him to prison. While he was out on appeal, he he ran off. JD hears that he's back over at the girlfriend's house. JD goes over there, and JD, you know. I can still to this day close my eyes and see the pictures of that girl's foot. Mm. Six-year-old, eight-year-old, beautiful little girl. Mm. Uh, J.D. goes over there and finds a guy at the girlfriend's house. He was hiding under a, in a cabinet or something. So he calls me. and back. Th- no, he came by the office. We didn't have cell phones or anything back then. He comes by the office and says, hey, Jeff, and you got to know J.D. to appreciate this. Man, may have a problem here. I said, what's going on? He goes, well, you remember that? I can't remember the guy's name, but you remember that guy? Well, I found him. I said, great. And he goes, well, we might get sued. He's going to say I beat him up. But, man, he came out of that cabinet at me and all this. He beat the snot. J.D. beat the snot out of that guy. I mean, just now, the statute of limitations is run. So that guy can't sue J.D. Stevenson. I don't believe for one minute that guy came out of that closet toward J.D. Yeah. I think J.D. said, it's time for you to go. I'll give you another example. Back then, of what's wrong with our society, back then, if you spit on a police officer, they would beat the living tar out of you, take you to the hospital, and take you home. Nobody sued anybody. You don't spit on police officers. 
Mm. Nowadays, what happens to our police? I wouldn't be a cop nowadays for anything. Yeah. But, yeah it's hard. It's hard, man. It's part of the reason why, uh, you know, I know Josh and, and – so pal, he came on. I guess it is. Uh, be it'll be aired by the time this comes it'll out. Be aired you know, one week. You know, making this big push for the sales tax, which I'm sure you've heard about it. Of trying to get our police and our no, firefighters a raise. Of commerce. I hear all okay, that. yeah, trying to get a raise because he's just saying, like, man, very few people want to be a police officer right now, especially whenever you pay them whatever they're making right now, thirty eight thousand dollars or something, to put their life on the line to be disrespected to be basically, spit on. yeah, be spit on, all that kind of stuff. And so, um, yeah, it's not a job I would want. No. At all. Um, tell me this, and then we'll move into rapid-fire questions. What is... No, hold on, I want, I want. You got something to say? I got something to say. You got a prepared statement. Well, no. Uh, if, you, just, if you fail to prepare, right? What is it? That's it. But you asked about crazy cases, and you were asking Goodson or one of those guys about, well, did you ever, you know, worry about people? I never worried about threats. I was threatened all the time. When you represent folks in divorces or you prosecute, there's always really? going to be somebody, I'm going to whip your butt, I'm going to get you, I'm going to... And I never really worried. I, I didn't turn my back to them, but they were just to my. That didn't make you nervous to go to Walmart or out to eat or somewhere to be like, I hope no, I don't run into somebody. I didn't ever put my. I always sat with my back to the wall at right. restaurants and stuff, but I didn't worry about. It was a little quiet, beady-eyed guy in the corner that scared me. Mm-hmm. But the example of that, or the exception to that rule, was Alan Hicks was an officer at the time, and he was going to. They'd been after this guy named Raynell Fletcher forever. They said, they said he's committed murders and rapes. They just were after him. for all. They finally got him for what's called interstate transportation of stolen goods, which is a fancy way of saying they were stealing cars in Memphis and bringing them to Paraguay. Okay. Well, they finally got him, and they said, we want to lay the hammer on him, Jeff. Don't, you know, max him out. And so we made him, we sent him to prison for a long time on something that normally somebody get parole or probation on. Mm. And he didn't like it. And he said right then, when I get out of prison, I'm going to kill Jeff Branch Alan Hicks and my ex-wife. Who did he say that to? Everybody that would listen. Us, everybody. And when he got to prison, apparently he was saying the same thing. Because a couple years later, Alan Hicks calls me and says, I need you to come to the Sheriff's Department. So I went down there and he said, well, I just got a call from uh, prison and they're paroling Raynell Fletcher this week. And he's continuing to say that when he gets out, he's going to kill me and you and his ex. I said, well, why are they letting him out? No doubt. Yeah. That makes that, sense. But then I'm thinking, well, you know. I said, well, how serious are you taking? He said, I'm taking it serious, and here's why I'd you come in. They just faxed me a, the most recent picture of him so you know what he looks like. And I'm thinking, man, I got a wife and a little kid. Mm-hmm. I said, well, you going to tell your wife? He said, yeah, I'm going to show her the picture. She needs I'm, I'm This guy's nuts. I said, well, okay. So I go home and lived right behind, well, back then, Hattie Woodhull House. You know where Ivan Samuel House is? Yeah, Main yeah. Street? Yeah, yeah. The, the lot behind him, there used okay. to be a house there. Okay. I lived there two steps from my law office okay so I, I showed my wife i said look here's this picture i don't believe anything will happen but if something you know if you see this guy beware next day she calls me jeff come home which i live 200 yards from the office i sure. ran home there's a guy's been driving up and down our street with a black uh trench coat on a motorcycle what i'm like well you know and i don't think that was him i don't know but it you know scared her i thought well okay man about a week later alan hicks called or maybe a couple of days later, shortly thereafter, called me and said, well, Branch, I got some good news and some bad news. What do you want first? I said, I don't care. He goes, well, bad news is Ray Neal went to his ex-wife's over, I think it was in, it was somewhere in Boot Hill. It was Zenith or Carothersville, Arbor, somewhere there. Uh, he went to her house, had a pistol with him. I said, okay, 
He said, now the good news is she shot him dead on her front porch. What? Wow. I said, really? He goes, yep, shot him dead as a nail on her front porch. And I thought, thank God he went after her before he came after wow. me. Wow, jeez. Blew his head off. Just, he was, he was going to try to make uh, so he was his making, promise. Well, on her he was. Wow. So, you know, it's not always the ones that are vocal that you need to be concerned about. It's the beady-eyed, quiet guy in the corner that's... I've always heard that, yeah. Those are the ones you look at. Those are the for. ones that will be scary. Mm. Yeah, those are the th- like when you look back at your your time as a lawyer, um, what sticks out to you the most in, in, in all of your work? Or what is maybe something that you that you think you'll always take with you, whether it's something, again, it's a, a case or it's just something you've observed about humanity or you've learned about yourself? I mean, Well, selfishly, it would be I got to practice law with my dad. Mm. I got to spend time with him. I got to learn from him. I got to uh, just built a real close relationship with my dad. Mm. Other than that, I I try to think that I did the right thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, I didn't always win. I was very successful. But, you know, you're going to lose some cases. But I always felt like I did the right thing. I never screwed anybody over. I never, you know, if I got hired to do something, I did it. Mm. So just the fact that I was able for 35 years to do something, uh, and no one ever filed a complaint against me with the ethics, you know. Mm. Uh, so, yeah, it's sure. hard to be proud of Jones murders and kids getting well, the first case I ever tried. In my here's if you've got a minute. Yeah, here's what Randy Fellers will do to a fella. I'm fresh out of law school. He's my mentor. Dad tells me you follow him, carry his briefcase, which is. Not true, but sure, sure, sure. Uh, he'll he'll teach you the ropes. So I've just taken the bar exam. I'm not even licensed yet. We don't have a results back. So I'm going with him over to the old municipal court. And Tuffy Howard was an old defense lawyer from Jonesboro back then, and he was getting older. And I said, "Man, I'd like to try a case against him before he dies." You know. Well, little do I know, Randy goes up to Andy Folkson, who was a judge at the mm-hmm. time, and says, "Hey, Jeff hadn't passed the bar yet, but would you care if he tried this case?" And he said, "Well, as long as." The Tuffy doesn't care. Well, Tuffy didn't care. He's going to wear me out. <laughs> and so the, my first case is against Tuffy Howard. I'm not even licensed to practice. <laughs> and the first thing Tuffy does, I object to that snotty nose, or I don't know what they're teaching these snotty nose pit squeaks in law school, but that's clearly hearsay. And I said, Your Honor, I didn't even know how to answer it. I'm, Your <laughs> Honor, uh, with all due respect to the court, trying to buy time to figure out. That's why always these lawyers are filler with words. All due respect to the court, or may it please the court, they're buying time. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but uh, and before I could even, Andy starts laughing. Says, "Mr. Howard, we don't treat." And after he called him down, he was nothing but respectful to me. Now that was my first trial, not even my first jury trial. We're supposed to try armed murder or armed robber or something. We had some case. And back then, you'd always set a case behind it in case that first case came out and settled and said, we're guilty. Well, we didn't. They were precious jury days. We weren't going to waste a jury day. We'd have another case ready. And Randy said, Jeff, this case is going to trial 100%. Ain't no way. But in case it doesn't, we have a DWI appeal from, from district court, and that'll be our second out. But you don't need to worry about it. Don't even. So I didn't look at the file. <laughs> <laughs> we get to court that morning at 9.15. Court starts at 9.30, and they said, hey, I'm, my guy's going to plead guilty. Randy goes, go get that file. <laughs> so I go get the file at our office. Now, I'm fresh, this is my first jury trial. I'm fresh out of law school. I'm nervous. As a, anyway, I go get the file and bring it back. Randy said, you review the file. I'll pick the jury. So he's picking the jury. I'm going over the file, seeing who the witnesses are and getting them prepared. 
And we convicted the guy, but I'm thinking, dang, what happened to the prior preparation for this <laughs> I didn't have none. The first real jury trial I had, not that one, but when I first got back from law school, they, my, my dad said, son, this is, you're going to have to handle this case. And I look at it. It's the associate pastor of their church has been accused of sexually abusing his eight-year-old son. Oh, geez. And I said, wow. And he goes, well, you're going to have to prosecute that because I, Bob Branch, Bob Thompson, and Randy Philhours all went to the same church. Uh, and I yeah. said, well, I go to that church too. And he goes, you ain't been there in three years. You don't know this You're guy. like looking, am I still the membership pro? Yeah. So, uh, wow. So, uh, the guy asked for a change of venue. He knew he was going to get a fair trial in Greene County. Yeah. They move it to Blyville. It's a week-long trial. I drive to Blyville every day for this. And what was wild, I got to know the lay-year-old boy and believed him, and, and he was telling the truth. We convicted the, the guy, and he went to prison for, I think, 20 years. Wow, I'd never heard of that. But um, the, the crazy part about it was there's a uh, – Dr. Warren Skog was his name, a psychologist or whatever in, in Jonesboro. He's retired by now because that was – but if you ever ask anyone about him, Dr. Warren Skog was renowned. I mean, he had a great reputation. Mm. So I go down to meet with him. He's going to be my expert witness on this case. And I walked in, and I went, oh, my God. He said, what? And I said, have you ever heard of doppelganger? And he goes, yeah. I said, you're not going to believe who your doppelganger is. He said, who? And I said, the defendant, the, the associate pastor. And he was such a doppelganger that I watched the, Bly I watched the jury in Blyville when we, Dr. Warren Skog is the next witness. You know, the bailiff will go out and bring them in the courtroom. Mm. The jury looks back, and when they see him walking in, every one of them did the exact same thing. They looked at the defendant, and they looked at the witness. <laughs> and so the, the first question I asked him was, state your name. My name's Warren Skog. Now, before I ask anything further, are you related to the defendant? Okay. No, I just had to ask, because <laughs> I know that's on the jury's mind, too. Y'all look a whole lot like he said, it's it's. That's just odd. It's just the way God made us. <laughs> but, yeah, so my first trials, you talk about being thrown into the lines. Hey, it sounds like you were, man. I was thrown into the lines then. Yeah. So thanks, that's, Randy. Yeah. I deeply appreciate you. Oh, that's awesome. I'm going to have to have my daughter uh, listen to this podcast. because She just told me yesterday, I asked her, for, for she's about to turn 12, and for the first 11 years of her life, when I asked her what she wanted to do when she grows up, she'd say be a singer. And last night I asked her, I said, what do you want to do when you grow up? And she said, well, you told me I'd probably never make it as a singer. So I guess oh. I'll, she said, I guess I'll probably just try to be a lawyer. <laughs> like, oh, I'd, I'd work on my voice if I was her. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I told her, I was like, to be fair, darling, I was like, you can go for that, but you probably need to have a backup plan just in case it doesn't work. So she might change her mind then. She might just want to go all in on singer after she listens to this. She should. Um, you ready for some rapid-fire questions? No. <laughs> well, this is great. It's always good to be able to ask an attorney these rapid-fire questions. Um, here we go. First question. What is the last show you watched or movie you watched? Or if you don't watch TV, what's the last book you read? Well, the last book I read, finished, uh, was odd. It was called The Gambler by Billy Walters. He was a... Uh, well, you ever heard of Phil Mickelson, golfer? Mm -hmm. Phil Mickelson got hooked up with Billy Walters, who's a big-time gambler, years and years ago. But uh, Billy Walters is the one that got Phil Mickelson in trouble with insider trading with Dean Foods years mm -hmm. ago. I don't know if y'all remember this or not. But mm -mm. Phil Mickelson was almost charged with insider trading. But it's very. This guy's very interesting. He, uh, you know, he was back in Vegas when the mob was there in seventies and eighties. Has very interesting. Sounds stories. like a fantastic book for someone with an accounting and. and, and 
law background. Yeah. But uh, right now, I'm, my wife got me. I think it's called Legend Before Energy. Energy Before I forget. It's it's a the Willie Nelson book. That's oh nice. Uh, it's about it's, there's 150 or 60 songs in there that he's done. Yeah. And on each page is the song, and the other page tells the story behind it. That's really cool. So do you know what you ever heard of the song Crazy? No, I'm not a big Willie Nelson fan, and I and I hate to admit that That's because I have a feeling. Crazy. Yeah, I have a feeling that that might be one of your favorites. No. Oh, but I love Willie Nelson, but she just got it for me because I love I love music, any music. Well, let's talk about music. What's your favorite band? What day? What time? I understand that <laughs> for sure. Yeah, yeah. What would you say if you had to go with one band that for the next month it's the only band you could listen to? You had to listen to their their album or their set of songs, whatever, and that nothing else for the next month. Who are you Rob, gonna pick? Robert Zimmerman. Robert Zimmerman. You've heard of him? No, I actually I haven't. You have. Is that a uh, like just him, or is he like from a? He used to play into the band. No, it's just Robert Zimmerman. Well, his name's Bob Dylan, but oh no! Okay. Oh, there you go. Hey, I'll be honest. The only concert I think that I've walked out on. Uh oh. Oh. It. It was 98 degrees at an outside venue. And he was how old? I loved Oh, this, I mean, this was 2017. So, he, I mean, it's I late. really, really, really wish that I liked Bob Dylan because I know that if you have a good taste in music, he's a better you're supposed lyricist to like and poet than he is yeah. a ri- uh, singer. Oh, for sure. He's a poet. He's a writer. Yes. And in 2017, all he, would, he, was, he wasn't playing stuff that I knew. Right. And it was at a venue my wife worked at, and we knew – his demands of the staff, and it just put me in a bad mood. What is what is so Bob Dylan? I'm Errol give, Smith. Uh, oh, yeah, Errol Smith. That's love Errol Smith. Don Henley. A lot of folks say the Eagles on there. They and, do say, but the I Eagles. prefer Don Henley's solo music to his time with. I the never Eagles. could get into Eagles. Who? Uh, what's a song by Bob Dylan I need to go listen to if I want to really see the showcase of his songwriting or just his, yeah, his poetry, his ability to use words. Really? Yeah. What song? What song do I need to listen to? Well, from if Bob you've Dylan. got time, yeah. Uh, Hurricane. Okay. You ever, the Reuben Carter was a, a boxer years ago, and his nickname was a Hurricane. He was wrongfully convicted in New Jersey of murder, and he got out years later. They figured it out, but the song Hurricane is about. It tells. It even uses the the people's names that he he writes about is the actual name of the the murderers and the people involved mm-hmm. in the case. Uh, murder gone. Uh, murder most foul. It's about 15, 16 minutes. Oh, that's the name of the song. That's another song. No, it's another song. Murder Most Foul. It's about John F. Kennedy assassination. Oh, it's a. it tells the entire story of the assassination. We might have to use some of his music as a soundtrack of our Dr. Jones documentary. Joker Man, that's a great song. Man, I can get with you on some Errol Smith. I'll, I'll steal every now and then go listen to Oh, I love Errol Smith. Uh, Eric Clapton. Oh, yeah. Eric Clapton's a good one. Classic. You like the good classic rock, man, which doesn't surprise me. You look like someone who could play in a classic rock band. Well, you know, when I, I, I don't have a, I can't sing. I don't have a musical talent, but I love music. In fact, when I retired a couple of years ago, I'd get up with nothing to do. So first thing I do, start my morning with my Dr. Pepper. I don't drink coffee. I'm a Dr. Pepper freak. I'd get me a Dr. Pepper and turn on some music. And I caught myself listening to the, my, every morning, there were three songs that I had to start my day with. And then I'd go from there, but there were days that I just sit home listening to music. 
Yeah. I'm, a, I'm a big music guy. Matter of fact, I've, I bought myself a little Christmas present this year. My wife gave me the okay to do it, but I bought me a nice pair of headphones. I'll talk to you about buying that. So it's just the Bose headphone sets. And I mean, I'll almost every night I'll sit in my chair in our bedroom and Megan will do some reading. And I'll usually do some reading, but I'll also just like listen to music through the nice headphones. So I love it. I'm with you on that. Noise canceling? They are noise canceling. And you ought to yeah. listen to People Get Ready by Rod Stewart. People get ready. People about, get ready. We should we should create a yeah. Jeff Branch playlist. Yeah, we should. Well, then Forever Young's on there too. Yeah, I know that one. People that's blowing get, in the wind. People get ready. Yes, blowing. sir. Uh, yeah, that, that's what I wanted to hear him play. And it's not what he was playing. Oh, tangled but up in blue. Mavis oh. Staples opened for him, and she was phenomenal. So, but they're they're like lo- long time friends and were sure romantic for a baby. while. Threw me a loop. I'm not mm-hmm. sure I recognize Mike. Well, Mavis Staple. There's just someone new. Rod, you need my you need my pen. I do. Always come prepared. I do. Uh, what would be your last meal? Uh, that's easy. Um, had it last week. Have it every January first uh, since I've had life, uh, and that's hog jowl, black eyed peas, mm. jalapeno cornbread, Amen. fried potatoes, greens. Listen, that Dr. sounds Pepper. amazing, and I attempted to make hog jowl this year without my mom's help, and it was awful, oh. and I don't know what I did wrong. Deep Do you right. make it? or yeah, My dad does, but I, I Can you jowl. make it? Yeah. What did you, lightly flour and a little bit of grease, right? Yep. You got you to gotta burn it, though. Okay. It, it needs to be crisp. Yeah, I tried to crisp it up, but it came like Oh, my so. dad makes great hog jowl. I've got some leftover. You think I could go to his house later and he could make me some? No, it all got eaten. Oh, he yeah. could make you some. <laughs> There's no leftover. Um, your dad's a big collard green fan. I remember yeah. that from whenever he came on the podcast. Um, what is on your nightstand right now? Uh, be a lamp, phone, phone charger. Got a letter. This is crazy. When my grandmother passed away 100 years ago, I was a pallbearer at a funeral, and my mother, which was – my mother's mother that passed wrote me a thank you note for being a pallbearer. And I thought that was odd, but when I read it, it was just so touching about how much my mother, grandmother thought of me and how proud my mother was of me. And so I had that letter framed. Yeah. That's cool. And it sits on, so I read it every day. Just to awesome. pat myself on my back about how good of a, <laughs> I'm a good grandson and a good son. Love. And then in front of it, I got my grandkids' pictures, but I can still read You have it. two grandkids? Yes. That's right. You spend a lot of time with them. Every Monday she spends a night, and every Wednesday he spends a night. And then I get them on weekends or other nights I can. But every Monday. Is that just because you want to spend time with them? Yes. That's really How old are they? She just turned seven, and he's three. He'll be four in April. That's fun. Yep. I got a six-year-old and a four-year-old. They're close in age, yeah. They're Chris would probably like for you to keep them one day. Yeah, you want to watch my boys? No, I don't care about <laughs> They're students. great. They sleep really well. <laughs> no, but I've been blessed. I'm, uh, they live here, and. I get to see them. And That's awesome. That's a huge blessing. I'll tell you the first words I heard this morning. I love you so much, Papa, oh. from a three-year-old boy. I love you so much, Papa. Is being a grandpa better than being a parent? Oh, I, I, if you didn't have to have children, you wouldn't. You'd have grandkids. I hear that from oh, everybody. Yeah, I, I love my boys. Don't get me wrong. But when they were when Elise was born seven years ago, we were at my house and had grill going in the back. So the men, me and my two boys were outside and, the women were inside, and I said, boys, I don't mean this rudely, but y'all no longer mean crap to me. <laughs> I love you, 
But y'all are done. At least it's my life. And they just laugh like y'all are. They knew I was semi-teasing, but they now realize I'm in it. My boys mean nothing. They're grown. They're in their 30s. You're on your own. You're on your own. Yeah. But them grandkids are my life. Oh, man. So I love it. Give us a snapshot. This might be part of your answer. Give us a snapshot of an ordinary moment that gives you great joy. Waking up in the morning. Mm. If I wake up in the morning, it's a good day. That's my theory. But yeah. just being around my family. I mean, yeah. my dad's 93. My grandson's three. You know, there was a time when... We'd have four generations of branches sitting on the same pew at church with my dad, myself, my son, my grandson, and just we're all tight. We're all. That's great. Uh, it, I've just been blessed. Yeah, for sure. It been sounds blessed. Like it. Last question. What is one thing that you're deeply grateful for right now? Pretty much what I just said. I mean, well, no, I'm, I'm grateful. Uh, I'll just be blunt and say it. I'm grateful that I took my dad's advice and put back 15% of my annual income every year mm. for 30 years so that I could retire early. Mm. Because I had several lawyers that pulled me aside when I was young and they were old and said, let me tell you something, son. I didn't put any money away from my kids' college and I didn't put any money away from retirement. And they died behind their desk. Mm. And I didn't want that to happen. Mm. And I tell, if kids would listen to the 80-10-10 rule I said earlier, and don't worry about people judging. You can walk out right now, you'll see me drive off in a 98 Dodge Ram pickup truck. I bought 1999, had seven or 17,000 miles on it, was fortunate enough I could pay cash for it. Mm. And I thought, well, I'm going to take 500 a month, which back then was a car payment. I don't know what it is now. Mm -hmm. But I took 500 a month, and I'm like, like that's a car payment. And I'm mm. going to set up an, a checking or a savings account, car account. I'm going to put 500 a month in it. And I did that faithfully for... About 20 years, mm. I'd get ready for a new truck, and I'd have plenty of money in there to buy a new truck, but I'd look at my truck, and I thought, you know. still working. It still works. And then I'd look at that bank account, and if you do the math, if you do, if you put $6,000 a year back, which is 500 a month, for 20-plus years with interest and growth, you've got a heck of an account right there. Mm -hmm. And I look at that account right now. And think that allowed me to retire. Mm. Was not trying to buy a new car to keep up with the Smiths and the Joneses. And people always ask me, when are you going to get rid of that truck? I ask them, do you know what that truck's worth? Do you have any clue how much that truck's worth? It's worth almost $200,000 with interest and dividends. And growth. Yep. yep. So I'm going to drive it until the wheels yep. fall off. That's great, man. That's awesome. So, it's a fantastic perspective. And you're right. In order to do that, you've got to be willing to... Uh, I guess, yeah. To use your what you said, you don't, you can't worry about what people think of you, you know. Because I, I, I drive a not that old, but I drive an older truck as well. And there are times that I will pull up somewhere, and I'm like, you know, I would never say this out loud. I mean, I'm saying it out loud now, but I'm like, I know I make more than they do when they drive a brand new truck. It's like I could have that if I wanted to. You know, and but they got a big yeah, and I hope that they don't think that I've mismanaged my money or something, and mm -hmm. that's why I'm driving this old truck or whatever else. And it's like, if I ever get rid of the truck I have right now, for me, not everybody, I think this will be able to get a new truck, no problem. There's no, but for me, I know that right now at this point, if I do it, the big thing is not because I need it, but it's because I don't want to look. Yep. I don't want people to look at me negatively, you know, like that's kind of the big drive for me right now nah. in some ways. And so like, I, I, that's a good word for me if for nobody else, just, uh, to hear that. So Dave uh, Ramsey's, uh, token phrase 
uh, is uh, live like no one else today so you can live like no one else tomorrow. Yeah. Amen. So it's like, you know, struggle today so that you can retire. But basically. I, and I've, I'll, I'll say this. Other than David Goodson, who retired as a judge, there aren't many retired lawyers from That's Turtle. interesting. Think about it. Bob Branch, Bob Thompson, myself, most other lawyers die practicing law, and it's not because they like it. Most of them don't. It may be because they like it, but most of them don't retire because they can't. Mm. They didn't save. They didn't. They were too busy keeping up with Joe, whatever. Yeah, I could. Anybody could drive a brand new vehicle. But I want to look at the balance sheet. You know, I know you got a lot of assets here, but what debt you got? Mm-hmm. And that guy driving that brand new vehicle, he'll never pay for that. I knew an idiot that as soon as he get his car paid, no, I shouldn't say that. <laughs> I knew a guy that every time he'd get a car paid off, he'd sell it and get a new one. I said, what are you doing? He said, man, I'm so used to that car payment. I'm afraid if, if I don't have it, I won't. I said, do what I did. So open a bank account and just put it back. I don't have the discipline for that. Well, that's on you. It's on you. Well, Jeff, I appreciate you, man. This has been a, I, this is the first time I think we've been in a room together. So, but I've known about you. For, I've known about you for a long time. I've really enjoyed spending time with your dad. Enjoyed spending time with you, and, and hope we get to do it again. I'm glad we're part of that little text thread. One day. We're going to have, a, I think, a Jones roundtable. We're going to see the Dr. Jones case with like you, Randy. We'll get Ryan Vaughn in here, some others, and we'll just relive the, the whole story and, and have a good time, drink some coffee or Dr. Pepper or something. So. No, it's got to be a Dr. Pepper. I hear that. <laughs> Thanks so much, man. Enjoyed it. Thank you. All right. Jeff has left the building. Definitely uh, the longest hair <laughs> we have had. Uh, yeah. yeah. From a male. Yeah, Excellent hair. I honestly am a little bit envious of it. I'm like, part of me is like, I want to be able to pull that off, yeah. but I just don't think it would work on it, it. If you're retired and you got that kind of hair, you have to just do it. Yeah. I really enjoyed hanging out with Jeff. Jeff, thanks so much for making time to come on and to share uh, your perspective. He said he wasn't going to pull any punches. That's all right. That's fine. Appreciate your honesty. Um, hey, for those of you who are still listening, thanks so much. For tuning in, if you've not already done so, please check us out on our different social media platforms. We're primarily on Instagram and Facebook. Give us a follow. Give us a like there. And if you've not done this, whatever platform you're listening on right now, whether it be Spotify or iTunes, whatever it may be, just go and give us a five-star rating. That'll help people to uh, find us more quickly and learn about the really incredible people that are living right here in our city. So as always, thanks so much for listening. Until next time.